let's continue with our planned program from this afternoon. And I've got Simon Mulvaney of Save the Bees Australia. He's an activist and a regular contributor to the program. G'day, Simon. G'day, Piers. We've been talking a little bit off air about the coming election uh, on the 26th of November. The Victorians are going back to the polls and making a call on whether they want more of Labor. Federally, we saw the last election where a lot of preferences went to, well, went from independence to Labor and wound up getting them across the line. But in terms of primary vote, there wasn't a lot between the two major parties. Do you think it's kind of likely that the same sort of thing might happen in Victoria, that, that, the, that there will be less of a primary vote going to the two major parties, including Labor, the incumbent? I do think that. Um, and I'm shocked. I thought um, after the, the, what we'd been through for the last four years in terms of lockdowns and irrational behaviours, that people would be completely turned off Dan Andrews. Mm. Um, and you, you're probably aware this time four years ago I ran myself and um, I ended up getting 4%, which is probably why Chris Brain, the Labor member, got in here to an extent. Right, um, okay. And because you preferenced him. Well, it was more... I probably took the Liberal 3%. I didn't actually give preferences. But I think it was the same time Turnbull had been ousted. I think there was some disgruntled Liberal people that voted independent for me, and it was so close in the end. I think it was... He'd planned an overseas holiday, so he was actually in shock when he won himself, Chris Brain. Mm. And he was working at the drive-in, I think. Was he? So they just, they didn't put, Labor hadn't put much effort at all down here. Mm. So to have an independent do well and get 4% really changes the whole polls that they've been going through. Yeah, and the the incumbent who was beaten by Chris Brain in the end was Dixon? Um, yeah, Martin, I think Martin it was, Dixon. and then there was Russell Joseph. I think was he was a, he was a, a candidate. He, he was, was a candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep I remember that. Um, so interesting that and and Chris Brain is quite a young guy, isn't he? He's like what mid twenties, something like that. Yeah, he's young, yeah. and um, yeah, obviously completely by surprise he got in. Yeah, I took the opportunity to become friends with him over that time Mm. and i still have his phone number he's been around at the house a few times i do like a few of the things he's done what um what he's been able to do is to get quite a bit of funding through to the different schools down here Mm -hmm. and and because you've got more of a chance if you're the party that wins and you're the sitting member it's a lot more efficient to get the funding and those sort of things down here Mm But in general, I think you get this illusion that the the member has a lot of power. But I definitely found that wasn't the case um, during the year or, or or during the last four years when some it seemed there was a lot of irrational decisions in regards to how they handled it down here um, when there was no COVID at all down mm. here mm. where. People are going fishing in Queenscliff, but we can't go fishing in Sorrento. Yeah, uh, kids uh, being shut out of playgrounds. playgrounds. The five-kilometre rule, so, you know, the only exception, I suppose, if, because a lot of people live more than 5Ks from a supermarket or it might be only a very expensive supermarket that's within five kilometres. So, you know, there was, there's sort of a need. That the more you get out of Melbourne, the more there is a need to be able to travel five kilometres. Then there were people who got caught on the boundary of what was, de- what was decided you know, it was Greater mm-hmm. Melbourne. We actually had some friends who lived on a property up, in the, up in, near the Yarra Valley and they were 
right on the boundary. So theoretically, they they were you know they were considered not allowed to go more than five kilometres from where they lived and had the eight pm curfew. And then you you know just beyond that, you you got into regional Victoria. Well, I saw a couple of surfers fined out of quarantine, mm. and the police had driven all the way to the end of the point there, mm. and um, were saying, well, you can't live within five k's of here because there's no houses five k's. With seven Ks or something, and yeah, oh, it's just um, the you know, obviously, it, it, we lost businesses. Some people are still traumatized about yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, um, Chris Brain rang me during the week and said, "Oh, you know, we, we've chatted a lot over the four years, and and will you be telling people to vote for me?" And it's a very difficult place I find myself because I do like him, think mm. he's great, and. Um, you know, I, I'm impressed with how many resources he's he's brought down here. Mm. But I'm also struck with how powerless, you know, a member is even if they do get in sometimes. Yeah. Because for me, the way they orchestrated the lockdowns and the measures and the mandates, I think, it, you know, I even wonder if it would have been any different under Liberal. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was a petition to separate the peninsula off from Melbourne, and that was because, you know, that was, it was like, well, we're quite separate. We're 100 kilometres away by road from the CBD of Melbourne, and yet we're part of Greater Melbourne. And even, I think, the local shire got behind that. They wanted to separate it off because then we would have been considered regional and then we wouldn't have had the lockdowns. I mean, it was basically people just desperate to try to avoid the lockdown. And we didn't have the, as you said initially, we didn't have the, the high cases of, of COVID down here. And we get a lot more funding yeah. if we are regional. Yeah. And then the other thing is our, our students will get a lot more money you know as they grow up going to universities in melbourne because Mm. they won't be considered regional Mm. so there's a lot of advantage advantages in doing that Mm. um but yeah apparently we're at risk of losing the green wedge if we do that so i don't know it it, it does get a little bit complex going through it because yeah there'll be a little bit of give and take in some and i think one of the sort of practical reasons was there was a lot of people because building was allowed to continue despite the lockdowns that was one of the exempt industries and so a lot of tradies live down here there's a lot of trade it's a real belt of tradies and a lot of them would drive up the the highway to get to melbourne to do work and so you had this regular movement between the peninsula and melbourne because of these exempted industry and therefore, they were concerned that there was going to be too much connection between the two, and if you would have too much difficulty policing the sort of boundary between uh, between Melbourne and the peninsula if the peninsula was made regional. That would have freed up a lot of people here who would still be needing to go to Melbourne for work. And I think other things that hindered us was the fact Dan Andrews has a holiday house here and was coming back and forth a lot. I guess if he freed us up and he was a bit freer himself, that would be hypocritical, Mm. Um, could be seen in that way. And then the other thing Chris Brain brought up was... The, was it the Colorado Five or whatever that came yeah. came that back brought, from, brought COVID back from America? Yeah, yeah we yeah. so we were sort of the first area that got it too. Mm. So that would you know that played into it, I'm sure, mm. as well. Mm. Um, well, look, I think there's lots of different angles on this. Made a few notes which I've shared with you. My take on this, and this is just a personal view, really, is that. Up until it was only it was only just a little bit more than a year ago that we came out of the last lockdown. So I think it ended in October 2021 was when we came out of that lockdown that I think began back in July. Since then we've been pretty much out of lockdown, and and one of the reasons that 
uh, was given at the time by the, by the leadership of Victoria, by Dan Andrews, was that you had a sufficient vaccination level uh, to, to justify opening up. But it's worth remembering that people don't want to think about the, the pandemic. It was a bad memory for, it is a bad memory, I think, for, still for a lot of people who live in Greater Melbourne, whose kids couldn't go to school, who watched themselves or their neighbours or their friends lose businesses, particularly small businesses, were really vulnerable. I mean, great for people who, who were white collar workers or people who were involved in sort of clerical jobs or office jobs. They could take it home. They could work from home. Very little impact on them. I mean, they obviously got the confinement of being at home and the loss of freedom, but uh, at least they weren't damaged economically. But there are plenty of people in Melbourne who, who weren't office workers, who couldn't work. Yes, they got government support and that was a big cash splash in inducing people or making it possible for people who needed money to stay at home and, and not spread the virus around or not risk spreading the virus around. But huge cost, huge addition to, to uh, Victoria's debt, the national debt as well in the process of that. There are plenty of people who lost their businesses and their businesses have not recovered since. And also children missed a lot of school. Greater Melbourne had the world's longest cumulative lockdown of any city. It was 267 days. And as we mentioned, we had the five kilometre rule. We had the 8pm curfew. The loss of education for our kids, that can't be recovered. You know, that's not something that's replaceable. It's it's a void. It's a, it's, it's, it's a missed opportunity. And I know that schools bent over backwards and tried and remote learning and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, that varied a lot from school to school. If we're talking about the, the, the state school system, that varied a lot. You know, some schools were very attentive. They were really onto it. Others, I believe, anecdotally, the kids got a lot less. And that makes sense. You know, different schools got different different uh, preparedness. It was a lot of, suddenly there was a lot of technology that had to be uh, working in their favour. And they had to sort of get it all rolled out and, and working in at pretty much the drop of a hat. So loss of kids' education, loss of businesses, massive impost on people's personal freedom. And I think one of the things to me that's really telling about this is that, you know, Victoria, Victorians and Melburnians suffered more than any other capital city in Australia. We're the sort of second city, I guess, in terms of population after, well, in uh, the world. after Sydney, but in Australia. But just comparing it with how other states fared, I mean, there were more people arriving from overseas potentially bringing COVID in in New South Wales, but they didn't have the quarantine leakage. They had a, a cruise ship, which which was, I mean, it's kind of a history repeating itself because there's a cruise ship up there now that's got a lot of people, it's, has released a lot of people into Sydney where they had about 800 cases of COVID. This is just within the last week. But, you know, back in the 2020, first year of the pandemic, there was a cruise ship that they led into to, to Sydney and, and there were people found to have COVID on board. But they had contact tracing, which was really good at tracking them down and containing it. They didn't have the leakage from quarantine that we did in Melbourne. The suggestion was that people were hired to man those quarantine hotels using WhatsApp at very short notice, given virtually no training and very little vetting. So you had people who've been asked to do a job which required a little bit of, of understanding about what they're supposed to be doing and about the risks involved, both for them and also the people who they're trying to protect the public and also the people in quarantine. You had leakage from that. You know, they were allowed out of the hotels, apparently they're smoking butts and leaving them in, in uh, you know, ashtrays and stuff out in the street. There's a homeless population of Melbourne that would go around and grab these half-smoked cigarettes, light them up and finish them off. And they're getting COVID and then spreading it among street people and homeless people in Melbourne. That was one of the ways it got out of, of, of um, wow. quarantine. So, you know, there was just some really basic failings that happened. Uh, now, you mentioned off there before, 
COVID found its way into aged care in, in Melbourne. And then, and this was worked out, it was worked out afterwards after hundreds of people had died and it had spread to multiple locations of aged care around Melbourne, that the staffing was on rotation. There were nurses who worked not just in one place, but who were moving on a, on a you know, daily basis between different work sites. And that was just the way it ran. And that was a perfectly reasonable way to have it pre-pandemic. But when you've got a pandemic, you've got a huge risk involved. And, and that was where you know, we lost hundreds of people to COVID because mm-hmm. they're the ones who were most at risk. And so that was another area of policy failure, if you like, of, of mishandling a situation. And to be fair, no one had any experience in dealing with a pandemic before. But it does seem that certain jurisdictions did a lot better than others. I mean, Western Australia obviously has some advantages because it's isolated. They did close their borders very strictly and they did it early. But they had 11 days of lockdown compared with 267 days of lockdown in, in Victoria. It's unbelievable that difference. Mm. They had, their businesses weren't affected. Their kids continued to go to school. There were um, COVID refugees out of Victoria. You know, there were people who were leaving Victoria in droves, hitting the road before these, you know, as they were saying, okay, as of 12 o'clock tomorrow, we're in lockdown. People just loading up the car and just jumping and driving to the border, getting as hightailing it to, to a state somewhere where they, where they weren't, weren't going to have the same lockdowns. And, and various people wound up over in WA having a lovely time. And their mm. kids were still doing remote learning uh, over the internet from, from schools down or here. Or they the joined schools over or in they, WA. Or they went to schools mm. over there. But remote learning could be done anywhere. So if you were attached to a school that was offering remote learning, then what a perfect way to, to give your kids an education. You don't have to homeschool. The only thing, we're, like we never really knew how much longer we were going to have to stay in lockdown. So right. that, yeah. that was... A risk that you took if you, if you did go out because mm. um, the caravans went through the roof because everyone was mm. you know hitting the road. There's suddenly all the you know grey nomads were not the only people out out trying to go camping in Australia, and the cost of four wheel drives to tow the caravans that that that, that went right up. And that was mm. also to do with shortages of, of the supply of vehicles and supply chain issues and all the rest of it as well. Yeah, the the other thing, and I don't know if you mentioned to the listeners, is the latest research on transmission with the vaccines. Mm. So they all seem to, the, the government seem to have this rule, we'll free you up a bit once we get to a certain level. But if they that didn't affect transmission, um, the amount of vaccinations people got, you know, was that pointless as well? Mm. I think earlier on there was some benefit from people being vaccinated with earlier versions of the virus, but now because there's been so much mutation, now we're in the sort of Omicron era, which started basically at the end of last year. So late 2021 was when the first cases of Omicron suddenly appeared. But it's less severe, it's not as deadly, but it's far more contagious. And that seems to be the way that the the virus is, is heading. It's become endemic around the world, so it's just something that's going to be there bubbling away and and it'll have peaks and troughs but just looking at the latest figures from health.gov.au which is federal government website nationally cases are up 47.3 percent in the last week so 7,809 cases for the whole of australia new south wales got 2,469 victoria 2,213 western australia just over a thousand cases there an increase of 14 percent Queensland, 758 cases, an increase of 36.3%. So there is a concern. South Australia's up um, nearly 70%, Victoria up nearly 60%. So 
the suggestion is that there are new variants that have made their way that are doing the rounds. Some of them not even necessarily originating overseas. I, I was interested to read recently that you know mutations and, and uh, variants that are emerging in Australia. Mm. I mean, also they're being fed from you know potentially from overseas as well. But that, that the suggestion is that we are going into another COVID wave, albeit one where there's less fatalities involved because the virus seems to be not as dangerous and deadly as it was. In terms of the efficacy of vaccinations, very little benefit. Uh, mm-hmm. And even natural immunity, I think they're saying that it might last you a month because there's such, you know, the, the virus is changing so quickly. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. I guess what, what we're really discussing here. Simon, is that it was only in October last year that we came out of the, the, the last big lockdown that we'd had in Greater Melbourne, and that ended a cumulative period of lockdown of 267 days, which made us the most locked down city in the world, certainly in Australia. And I didn't know until recently that WA had only had 11 days of lockdown, which is nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. they basically didn't have a pandemic really over there. Compared with compared with some places, uh, compared with the east of Australia, Queensland uh, got off pretty lightly. South Australia got off pretty lightly. Tasmania got off pretty lightly. I had a friend who moved down to Tasmania to avoid the lockdowns, but very early on in the pandemic, you know, before the the escape from hotel quarantine in Melbourne, she came back and and uh, after about a you know a year or so down in Tasmania, she knew Melbourne as a as someone who was originally had grown up here. But she said she had the sense of there being a like a post-traumatic st- stress disorder that 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 Melburnians had on mass, mm. uh, which they weren't even aware of. You know, it was it was hard for them to actually sort of self-diagnose. Well, this, this is why is it Stockholm syndrome if we vote for Dan Andrews again? Mm. Um, you know, is how how is he favourite, and is that because of weak opposition? Mm. I think that seems to be the consensus. I was looking at some YouTube videos and, and really the main news organisation, well, it's it's the Murdoch uh, media that seems to want to take him on, Fox News in particular, likes of uh, Peter Credlin, who's the, uh, the journalist who during his presses and stuff during lockdown, she was one of the few people who was prepared to stand up to him. She got pretty, pretty much blackballed. I don't believe she was given uh, the mm-hmm. access, ongoing access that a lot of other journalists who are more favourable in their coverage of Dan Andrews and his policies and his lockdowns were given. But she's actually coming out on Wednesday with a program on Fox called The Cult of Dan Andrews. And I believe it's airing during the news. That's uh, Peter Credlin's documentary, if you like, or investigative journalism piece uh, on Dan Andrews, the cult of Dan Andrews. And trying to explain, in answer to your question, why is this guy who, on the face of it, inflicted so much damage to a lot of people's lives and had these massive lockdowns, had this big death toll in, in aged care, had the virus escape out of hotel quarantine, had, had issues with contact tracing, had very draconian restrictions, you know, 8 p.m. curfew, five-kilometre rule, police wrapping tape around, cordoning off kids' playgrounds. And was driving drunk and knocked over a bike rider. Yep, in Blegari. In Blegari. And, uh, you know... His wife did. Well, there's there's questions about that. There's only recently been... He claimed that they were hit by the cyclist. Neither Dan Andrews or his wife were breathalyzed by the police. The car was not impounded as is normal procedure to be to be forensically examined. That didn't happen. 
the person on the bike who was hit, who was a 15-year-old guy, who wound up in hospital with multiple bone mm. breakages. I saw that the photos that were recently released of the damage to the car. Huge crater in the front windshield. Windshields are bloody I hard. remember the night. It was on New Year's Eve, wasn't it? I don't know exactly when it was, but it was just before he became Premier. So it was about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. He's been Premier for two terms. This is coming to the end of his second term. So he's had eight years and he's about to potentially get another four. Mm. It will make him quite a long-serving Premier. The theory that goes around that we hear around here was that he was drink driving and then convinced her to, Maybe to he switch seats. Once one, one r- rumour, and totally unsubstantiated, but it, it was a rumour that went around was that he changed seats. But I think the official story is that his wife was driving. But why she wasn't breathalysed? No, mm. no adult occupant of the car, driver or otherwise, was breathalysed. And the vehicle was not forensically examined at his normal, normal uh, procedure. It is, it's, it's actually mandatory for the police to breathalyse someone where there's been a, a, a collision like that. Mm-hmm. The uh, victim impact statement from the, the 15-year-old boy who went up in hospital for a couple of weeks, I think, badly injured. He was never asked to give a victim impact statement by the police. Now, he's involved, apparently his family is now involved with some legal action, which is incomplete. I did think the timing was that with, with all this is interesting too. Like the media have, have released this just, you know, obviously at election time. What exactly was involved with that, that boy, whether there is a story there or not, Dan Andrews was asked about it. He's very adept at just shutting people down. It was like, you know, I've answered questions about that. I'm not going to go there again. The record speaks for itself. Just well, that's story. the other. The, the, the rumours obviously opened up as well after he went missing for I don't know how long that was. Six months and um, no, he was missing for nearly four months, mm. and that was that was a separate incident. He was premier at that stage. Uh, he it was down. For, he was renting a holiday house, and he claims that. Um, having been down here, and I think he went to a party on the Saturday night, he was leaving in the morning the following day, so sober, well, pretty much sober, maybe a little bit hungover, perhaps, I don't know. He fell down these these steps of this holiday house, but to wind up in hospital with very serious back injuries and be completely out of action and not visibly, not seen for nearly four months, it's hard to kind of add the two together when you see the the images of these the stairs that he fell down. Like it's a couple of very very small steps, you know, mm-hmm. from a low a low veranda down to ground level. Yeah, down to some grass. So so on the building sites, they were telling me that he got beaten up. Yeah, these rumours, and we're not even going to go into what the rumours are, but but they are unsubstantiated. I suppose what is interesting to me is that. If he'd had back injuries, he was still conscious, right? So say after they've treated him in intensive care with his back at the Alfred where he was taken to, you'd reckon within a couple of weeks he would have been able to sit up in his hospital bed and actually make a statement to the media and to the to the Victorian public, who he's the Premier of. And in normal circumstances, I reckon that's what a Premier would do. No one actually laid eyes on Dan Andrews until he did a press conference about three and a half months after the incident. And the suggestion is that his injuries were actually inconsistent with the fall that he claimed was the cause of him being hospitalised. In other words, maybe he had facial injuries, Mm. harder to explain. Yeah, he lost a few teeth, so like people were saying... So that, that makes a little bit more sense. But Either way, he's... It's um, unsubstantiated. And, his popularity and, is still... Exactly. He's, it's, it seems that he's very, very shrewd and very good at holding on to his position 
no matter what, and he's good at taking down the media and, and anyone who sort of crosses him, he seems to be very good at shutting them up. We had the code inquiry, which looked at failure of hotel quarantine. That didn't seem to do much good. There's been four anti-corruption inquiries into Dan Andrews, the IBAC probe into allegations of branch stacking and poor party culture, purges of the party's right wing, and uh, in fact, the takeover of, of the run-in of the Victorian branch of, of Labor by federal ALP. Those are all things that have happened. But he is media savvy. He has been described as the most gifted liar in Australian politics. The right wing, Fox News, have come out really attacking him. As I mentioned, Peter Credlin, who's a right wing journalist and works for the Murdoch Media, works for Fox News. She's been very critical of him. She was critical of him when he was doing his presses during lockdowns, asking some difficult questions then. She's doing this investigative report on Fox News, the cult of Daniel Andrews. Also, it's a Sydney journalist, Steve Price. I saw an interview with him recently where he was saying that a, a politician like Dan Andrews with this sort of record of, of being IBAC probes, you know, don't forget in New South Wales, they got rid of a premier for accepting a, a, a bottle of wine. And then the most recent uh, head to roll up there as premier was Gladys Berejiklian. And uh, that was because of an unfortunate relationship she had, a, a, you know, a guy who was bad news for her, but she had to resign. So kind of for lesser things than what we're talking about for Dan Andrews, even when there's a question mark, you know, even when these are not confirmed reports about punch-ups and, you know, whether he did or didn't fall down the stairs or how, what kind of injuries he's had, but they certainly raise questions. And it seems that in Melbourne, those questions haven't really been taken very far, whereas in other, other uh, jurisdictions, other states, mm-hmm. they would have been taken a lot further. Steve Price <laughs> describes Dan Andrews as, quote, the most canny, conniving, power-hungry politician in Australia. Yeah. This is a, a segment of the media which you know not not all of the media support or agree with. Pretty interesting stuff. The elections on the twenty sixth. So we've got eleven days until people get the opportunity to vote, decide whether they want to have a, a another crack with Labor. And it would seem the polling I think suggests that maybe there's been a bit of a swing in recent days against the Premier, but it would seem that a lot of people are going to be voting to return the Andrews government for a third term. So that'll be 12 years of Dan Andrews. I think Dan here here will be interesting, though. I don't know if I would consider a Chris Brain favourite for this seat. It was the first time in 100 years, I think, or more, that, that Labor got in down here. Mm. In, in regards to funding, if Dan does win, there's probably more funding will come down here if there is a member from the Labor Party. So anyway, that's something to for us to think about down here. Mm. Well, you've met Sam Groth. I haven't, I haven't actually never met him. What are your impressions of Sam Groth? He's, a, he's an ex-professional tennis player, yep. uh, and apparently he had one of the biggest serves ever. I think he's, he's, I think he's got the world record for the, fa- the fastest serve ever, 260-plus kilometres per hour, which is really, that's a big serve. His slogan is, I'm here to serve. Ready to serve. Ready to serve. Yeah. You know, he, he, he probably is. He seems like a nice guy. He, was, he, he called me out of the blue and, and wanted to get my perspective on, on things down here and what it's like to run and... Mm. Your experience four years ago as an independent, yeah, 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 which was a pretty good result for you, considering you, you, you know, the whole thing was fairly quick and a fairly last, a last minute decision would be fair to say. For you to capture four percent was was pretty good going. I think it broke a record down here, but I, I think I was fortunate in a few ways. I, I was number one on the ballot 
there was obviously that, that issue with Turnbull turned a, a lot of people towards independence rather than the major parties. And in the end, you know, you wonder, is it worth it? It, it is quite a bit of work running, but it has given me an ear to the people in power. Mm. But the frightening thing for me is that even you do get voted in it doesn't necessarily mean that you can make big decisions and the obvious one that should have been made at some point was to free up the peninsula from the lockdowns that melbourne were going through mm. well, they had petitions and the, the local shire the morning peninsula shire one was behind that but i think a hard thing to get through and as we said there's kind of practical reasons perhaps a lot of movement between the peninsula and melbourne they could have zoned that off too, I, th- I think, or mm. given people the choice. You have mm. to stay. Apparently, a lot of the area. fines that people were given for not, you know, for not complying with those rules. Now, there were quite a few people who just said, "Bugger this! I'm, not, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do," you know, and you can yeah. find me. I'm pretty sure that not many of them have paid. Another interesting, you know, loophole was I'm seeing a, a partner, yeah, an intimate partner, mm. and you know, how many of them can you have? Mm. And, they could um, be anywhere. And yeah, any sex, you know, you know, like if you're visiting a mate. Anyway, hopefully we never, the world never sees anything like that again or, mm. or we don't. Mm. It, it, it did, it turned neighbours against neighbours and family People members against each other family. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and it was all based on fear, you mm. know, and really to solve a problem, to solve a public health problem, uh, you know, maybe there's there's better ways of going about it than just really basing the whole thing on fear. Because it was all about, you know, remember, remember one of his, lines that he used was it's in an abundance of caution an abundance of caution was was all of you know that was how you justified closing things down shutting people up in their homes closing schools the damage to education i think for, for kids i think is that's a big one we get to see the full effects of that and i think also businesses and as we said there's not everyone not everyone is either on the government payroll getting paid regardless qualifying for welfare People who've just arrived who aren't able, not eligible for welfare, who don't have clerical jobs or jobs that can be done on, on the internet on a, on a laptop. Those sort of people were really in, in quite a, a tight spot. And obviously we've added a lot of debt to the state. For, for me, the pandemic was, was difficult for everyone. It was difficult all over the world. It wasn't just in Australia this, this, that was difficult. But I do think that within Australia, we had a lot of, of, of advantages. Geographical isolation was a big one. And to me, it's sort of like, well, how was it that a place that was having a lot more arrivals flying in every day, in the case of Sydney, how is it that they actually did a lot better and didn't have nearly as, as many days of lockdown as Victoria? Those are the sort of comparisons, I think, that, that bear asking and dwelling upon. You know, of course, no one wants to really relive the pandemic because, and the lockdowns because it was a, a really nasty, dark time. But at the same time, I think we, the reason why we're we doing it now is because we're being asked to, to, to give this guy another chance or, or try someone else, give someone else an opportunity. Mm. We're in a democracy and we get to make that choice on the 26th of November. So there you have it. That's, that's our views for, for what it's worth. I've been talking with Simon Mulvaney of Save the Bees Australia. Just as a little reminder, in case you forgot, but in, in September last year, so the lockdowns I think ended in October, but in September 21, just over a year ago, police used rubber bullets against the public who were protesting violently in the streets of Melbourne. There was some amazing footage, which I don't think anyone expected to see in a city like Melbourne with a reputation for civility and people being polite and gentle and kind to each other and there were anti-lockdown anti-vaxxers and even anti-union protests 
that really did turn ugly and violent in September 21. Police used rubber bullets and there were scenes which I don't think anyone had ever expected to see in Melbourne. So on that note, let's wrap this conversation up. I think we've said enough and turn it over to our listeners to make the decision. They can talk about it with their family and friends and colleagues and make a call on the 26th next state election. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.